Welcome to the Climate Smart Farming Show podcast. This podcast is sponsored by my supporters on Patreon and by B Books, publisher of A Farmer's Guide to Climate Disruption, which is now available in print, ebook, and audiobook. B Books also publishes climate smart romance novels by Tara L. Roy. Learn more at bbooks.org. You'll also get free climate smart downloads, including tips for weathering drought and flood, and the Farm Emergency Preparedness Plan. When you subscribe to BeeBooks newsletter, sign up at beebooks.org, beebooks.org. I'm your host, author and multimedia artist, Rebecca L. Fraser, and I'm excited to share this episode of the Climate Smart Farming Show podcast with you. So let's dig into it. Part 9. Climate Smart Farming Methods If some of the solutions prescribed in this book seem contradictory to you, you're right. Every farm is different, therefore every solution will be unique. Certainly, similarities exist between your farm and your neighbors, or even between your farm and one on the other side of the world. Yet there may be major differences between your microclimate, your crops, your farming experience, and the history of your and everyone else's plot of land. In the following chapters, we look at how some climate-smart farming practices are being implemented around the world to great effect, and we consider how the post-carbon farm may look. Chapter 21 Pollination Challenges and Strategies Pollinators are responsible for nearly 30% of our nation's food supplies. Honeybees, Apis mellifera, support an estimated $15 billion in crop production, visiting fruits, nuts, and vegetables, including blueberries, cranberries, cucurbits, apples, almonds, onions, celery, beet, brassica, and citrus. In California alone, more than 850,000 acres of almonds require more than 1.5 million honeybee colonies for pollination. Yet populations of honeybees and other pollinators around the world are declining. In the United States, approximately 30% of colonies are lost each winter due to the combined effects of pests, pathogens, environmental toxins, and poor nutrition. While climate change is not the sole cause of stress to honeybees, the links to climate disruption are clear. For example, the honeybee pest Varroa mite could produce many more generations in a warm year than one with seasonably cool temperatures. UC Davis entomologist Dr. Elena Nino said the added presence of the mites stresses honeybees. Nino also expressed concern that California's ongoing drought reduced the amount of available forage for the honeybee population. She said, we're feeding our bees sugar and protein supplements. It's becoming more and more expensive to keep the colony going. For growers relying on pollination to set their crops, unpredictable weather patterns can lead to unpredictable pollination. Honeybees are most active in warm, sunny conditions, explained Cesar Rodriguez-Seona of Rutgers Philip E. Marucci Blueberry and Cranberry Research Center. Intense rain patterns can reduce the foraging behavior of bees. 
Zeke Goodband, orchard manager at Scott Farm in Dummerston, Vermont, brings in about one hive of honeybees per acre at the beginning of the blossom bloom. Yet climate change has disrupted the growing season, requiring Goodband to adjust his pollination practices. In recent years, unusually mild starts have caused the farm's 120 varieties of heirloom apple trees to break dormancy as much as a month ahead of historical patterns. Subsequent returns to quote-unquote normal cold or freezing temperatures damage apple buds and blossoms. In cold snaps, imported honeybees don't do the job. Goodband said, the honeybees seem to have the work ethic of teenagers. Start work later in the day, stop earlier, and seem to need near-perfect conditions to really work. Return of the Native Before the advent of trucking honeybees around the country in 1907, produce growers without their own hives relied on wild native bees to pollinate their crops. There are approximately 4,000 species of wild bees documented in the United States. And today, estimates for wild bee pollination services are at $3 billion. Many of our crop plants depend on bees and wild pollinators for fruit set, wrote University of Florida entomologist Glenn Hall on his website, The Bees of Florida. Native pollinators can pollinate almost any plant, but they prefer certain plants over others. In our changing climate, more growers are returning to wild pollinators to ensure the success of their crop. In New Jersey, USDA's Natural Resources Conservation Service assists local farmers in designing, installing, and maintaining native pollinator habitats as conservation practices. Funding for these habitats is available through the various financial assistance programs offered by NRCS. In Vermont, Goodband is relying more on wild bees for pollination because they work in cooler temperatures and tolerate wind and wet weather. He reported, native bees just seem more resilient and able to deal with these changes. In Dedham, Maine, wild blueberry grower Gail Van Wart discovered the same thing. Long stretches of wet weather during spring pollination had become an increasing problem for Van Wart. She explained, Honeybees will not fly when it's rainy, windy, or when the temperature drops below 50 degrees Fahrenheit. Spring is when the bloom comes on the wild blueberries, and they have just a few weeks to be pollinated before the bloom falls off. Any blossom on the wild blueberry plant that does not get pollinated will not become a blueberry. Van Wart switched from honeybees to native pollinators so she could count on pollination happening even in varied and inclement conditions. She said, We gained insight on how nature intended crops to be pollinated. Van Wart also turned her wild blueberry farm into a sanctuary for native pollinators to exhibit their worth in crop production. Since making the switch, Van Wart has seen increased pollination and thus increased yields. Financially, going native has been a boon. She said, Native wild bees do not cost us any time or money to keep, so it is far less costly than keeping honeybees, especially in a northern climate where they have a hard time overwintering. Encouraging Natives 
Anne L. Nielsen, Extension Specialist in Fruit Entomology at Rutgers, manages flowering weeds between trees in apple and peach orchards to reduce the number of bees foraging in the orchard after bloom. She said, ongoing research in my lab has been on managing ground cover to reduce pesticide exposure to foraging bees, both honeybees and natives. Josh Campbell, a native pollinator researcher in Dr. Jamie Ellis's Honeybee Research and Extension Laboratory at University of Florida, suggested growers make their cropland as attractive and pollinator-friendly as possible. He suggested following exact label instructions for pesticides to minimize the impact on pollinators. Using a no-till practice, even outside of the crops, to enhance native bee nesting structure for the 70% of native bee species that are ground nesters. Planting native wildflowers that bloom at different times to provide nectar and pollen throughout the season. And leaving field margins unmowed and unplowed because many quote-unquote weeds are highly attractive to honeybees and native pollinators. To enhance the biodiversity of their orchard ecosystem, Scott Farm planted a plethora of wildflowers and a diverse array of tree fruit, shrubs, and vines. Goodband shared, with 120 varieties of heirloom apples, we're pretty well spread out with bloom times and harvest. We think our growing philosophy that recognizes the orchard as a potentially wildly diverse ecosystem will help us weather the changes in climate. In Maine, Van Wart makes sure to have native plants around to provide native pollinators a diversified diet from spring to fall. It's easy, she said. It's just letting nature do what it was supposed to do. I hope you enjoyed today's episode on pollination challenges and strategies. This was a really fun episode to produce for me because I was fortunate enough to visit Scott Farm Orchard in Dummerston, Vermont on several occasions. Actually, one of the buildings on the property is the home where Rudyard Kipling wrote The Jungle Book. As an author, I found that intriguing. As a foodie, I was excited to try several of the orchard's 100-plus heirloom varieties of apples, which were laid out on beautiful farm tables in an old white barn. I never realized how different an apple could taste. And it's safe to say that Scott Farm makes the absolute best apple cider I have ever tasted in my life. And I grew up in New England, where apple cider is kind of a thing. Of course, without pollinators, heirloom apples and cider would not be possible. So Scott Farm takes their relationship with pollinators very, very seriously, as I'm sure you noticed while listening to this episode. Anyway, if you happen to find yourself in Southern Vermont, I highly suggest you plan a visit to Scott Farm. They have a variety of workshops and activities, plus an active farm store. Although with the pandemic, some of these activities may be limited. And just FYI, they're not paying me to say this. I just really happen to love the place. On another note, if some of the solutions prescribed in this and previous episodes of the podcast seem contradictory to you, you're right, they are. Every farm is different. So of course, every solution will be unique. Some similarities exist between your farm and your neighbors, or even between your farm and one on the other side of the world. 
Yet there may be major differences between your microclimate, your crops, your farming experience, and the history of your and everyone else's plot of land. In the next few episodes, we'll look at how some climate smart farming practices are being implemented around the world to great effect, and we'll consider how the post-carbon farm may look. I hope you enjoyed this episode of the Climate Smart Farming Show. Tune in next time to learn how farmers in Kenya and Ethiopia are thriving, even as climate disruption intensifies. Thanks for listening to the Climate Smart Farming Show podcast. If you're enjoying this podcast, you may also like my book, A Farmer's Guide to Climate Disruption, now available in ebook, print, and audiobook. To support this podcast and my other creative endeavors for as little as $1 a month, please visit patreon.com forward slash Rebecca L. Fraser. podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com. <laughs>